Welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. Over last week, we were heard in seven countries, including the U.S. Thanks to all of our loyal listeners. Speaking of the U.S., Americans must be proud to be an American this week with the attack on the Capitol. I won't get into the details, just, wow. Today we'll be discussing abduction, well, alien abduction to be exact. I'm Doug, and I'm joined today by Deb, with Deb. What's new, Deb? No, I spent the day making cookies while you did your research on alien abduction. Awesome. I know. I got a new picture. What'd you get a picture of, Doug? You see my picture of the Loch Ness Monster getting, being beamed up into a UFO from the, uh, from Loch Ness. Is that what made you want to do a podcast on alien abductions? Well, you know, I just, it's kind of like, well, there's Loch there's Nessie getting abducted, you know. <laughs> Great picture, Doug. Let's talk abduction, Deb. Well, in the United States, the first story of abduction by extraterrestrials that received national attention was that of Betty and Barney Hill, a couple from New Hampshire who claimed to have been kidnapped in a UFO incident in 1961. There is, however, another earlier story of abduction. This one dates from 1957 and centers around Antonio Villas Boas, a farmer from rural Brazil, which we'll be detailing in a few minutes. Most abduction stories have elements in common with that of Villas Boas, kidnapping in an alien spaceship, medical exams that center around the human reproductive system, or explicit sexual contact with extraterrestrials. Hello. And mysterious marks left on the body. Carl Sagan, in his wonderful book, Demon Haunted World, brings these elements together, arguing for a connection between what abductees say now and what narratives of mysterious sexual night encounters have been saying for ages. There are mythologies dating back thousands of years. For example, from Sumerian folklore of 2400 BC, where a demon in either male or female form seduces people in their sleep. Saints Augustine and Thomas Aquinas wrote of the incubus and the succubus, demons that come during sleep to have sexual relations with unwilling humans. And they're all unwilling. They're sleeping. <laughs> and these are demons. These are these are hunks. You, this is a rat, this is demons. It's okay, it's a hunk. If it's a hunk, it's different. <laughs> Similar stories hunk. appear in cultures across the world. Meanwhile, the nearest star to Earth is about four light years away. Our fastest spaceship would take some 100,000 years to get there. If intelligent aliens exist and came here, they would have technologies beyond anything we can dream of capable of fast interstellar travel, able to come and go without a trace. Duh. <laughs> and you know, that's the whole thing. They, you know, if they can do what we seemingly are witnessing, then yeah, they could probably go from A to Z. And, you know, I think they've been, I think the whole concept is they've been space. I mean, they, instead of, you know, it's like a piece of paper and then the theory is, they take it and they're able to bend space, so they're, it, it makes the distance they actually a lot closer than they go it seems. Instead of a yeah, a worm like a, I think they use worm. There's right. 
assuming they use some kind of wormhole, but then it, it wouldn't take them 100,000 years, although their technology is allegedly much better than ours. Like a fireman's pole through space. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> One also has to wonder about the alleged repetition of exams focusing on our sexual organs. Given their alleged technological prowess, you'd have to also believe that alien medical tech would be a bit more capable than it has been portrayed in abduction lore. Yeah, what, what are they looking for? You know, I mean... Trying to figure out what... Yeah, they, 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 haven't, they haven't trouble figuring out what that... You know, I can, just can't figure out what that thing does. What is with these people who, who make to you know, they, produce? What is... You know, how do they do this? And yet, according to some of our stories, they made to reproduce, so... Well, they're... Yeah, yeah they're... Well, they're... Yeah, and we'll we'll hear about some of those situations coming up. Um, J. William Shop, a paleontologist at the University of California, once said that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. In the case of alien abductions, it seems that very ordinary explanations are to be believed in the absence of extraordinary evidence. This is not to say that scientists wouldn't love to have evidence of extraterrestrial life, especially intelligent life, but the fundamental precept of science is to base claims on evidence backed by verifiable data. Otherwise, why give scientific claims any credibility? Various researchers have noted common points in report narratives. According to Kufos, their definition of abductee is the person must have been taken against their will by apparent non-human beings, taken to a special place, perceived as extraterrestrial, or to be a spaceship. It's a special they, place. A special place. They then must experience being subjected to an examination or to engage in some form of communication with the beings, or both of those things. Or sex. That's, I think that's a communication. <laughs> that's a form of communication. Or examination, I'm not sure which. Depend on how they do item. Communication may be perceived as telepathic rather than verbal. What do you say, Doug? Well, from the 1969 Berkshire's UFO incident to the eerie tale of Barney and Betty Hill, these alien abduction stories might even make skeptics believe that the truth is out there. On September 20th, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill were driving through the White Mountains of New Hampshire when they said a bright light came out of the sky. Two hours later, they were back in their driveway with no memory of what had happened or where they'd been. According to their subsequent, subsequent reports, sorry, that's how you say it right, the couple had traveled to Zeta Reticuli, a star system 39 light years from Earth. You say that's where you're from? That's exactly where I'm from, or Carmichael. Carmichael, Zeta, Carmichael, Tequilae. Yeah. Betty was even inexplicably able to draw an accurate, detailed map of the sky as seen from the star. And she's an astronomer now, right? So she knows where everything is, or she's got a heck of a memory. This was the first noteworthy alien abduction story in modern history. Their tale captivated a nation that had scarcely heard anything like it before. And in the years that followed, countless other tales of alien and UFO abductions emerged, each containing new details of grotesque, otherworldly creatures. In 1971, there was a Pascagoula incident, which allegedly saw two fishermen taking, taken from a riverbank in Mississippi and held captive, captive aboard an alien ship. 
Then in 1978, there was the Travis Walton abduction, during which a Texas man vanished for five whole days. While there has yet to be any proof that these first-hand accounts are real, following alien stories below are certainly detailed enough to cause chills. Let's start with the details of the Barney and Betty story. That's the Flintstone neighbors, right? Exactly. Barney and Betty Hill's alien abduction story started it all. Barney and Betty Hill took a spontaneous trip to the White Mountains of New Hampshire in September of 1961. As he recounted in John G. Fuller's The Interrupted Journey from 1966, Barney needed a break from his night shift at the post office, while Betty was mentally exhausted from handling state welfare, child welfare cases. Yeah, my mom was a welfare worker in the that San is, Francisco Bay Area. It was heartbreaking. It was brutal. Very the stories. Job. The stories, and then home at night to the martinis. I think that's how she shook that off. Because, you know, no Prozac. Should, should have been some Prozac. <laughs> On the last night of their big shift honeymoon, the two found themselves in a Vermont diner, ready to make the last dash home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. By leaving at 10 p.m., they planned on arriving home right around 2 a.m. On the road, Betty noticed a particular, particularly bright star, perhaps a planet in the sky. When this celestial object began changing its course in an erratic manner, Betty was convinced it was a UFO. Her husband, not so much. Barney, she said, if you think that's a satellite or a star, you're being completely ridiculous. As the object drew closer, Barney pulled the car to a stop and, gun in hand, got out to investigate. <laughs> Grabs his piece, I'll we're, take care of you. We're not Barney fighting. You better, hope, you better hope it's not a cop. Yes. You know, you get shot. And we, you know, we knew this is, what's the proper term for this? Because he's, this he's, uh, he's African American and she's whitey. And, you know, and, uh, yeah, and it's 1961. Yes. So, they you know, had some tough times of it already. Yeah. Um, Definitely. So as, and that's probably why Barney traveled with a gun. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it was so redneck back then. As, um, as Barney approached the object, he saw what he would later describe as a pancake-like disc glowing with brilliant white light. And it was about the size of a jet. It was not a small No, it's large. He fleeing back to his car, he and Betty tried to evade the vessel but were instead overcome with an intense drowsiness and immediately fell unconscious. The couple, next thing they knew, the couple, the couple was pulling into their driveway around dawn, unable to recall anything. While Betty was convinced they had encountered a UFO and later reported the sighting to the Air Force, her husband was skeptical. It was only when the couple met with psychiatrist Dr. Benjamin Simon for a consultation in December of 1963 that Barney finally changed his mind. Two years later, it looks like. Well, Dr. Simon found both to be suffering from a crippling anxiety. Betty, in particular, manifested hers in the form of repetitive, nightmarish dreams. That would be horrible. Well, Doctor, she, I saw the movie, and all I remember from the movies are yelling, ah, because ah, they're, they're probing her. They show this, you know, the, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if they're probing her or they're sticking her with a needle. I don't remember exactly what they were doing. But she, that screen, there's all, I, I, that's the only thing I remember about the movie, sir. Ah, ah, 
Poor Benny. I know. Um, Dr. Simon put them under hypnosis, which reportedly held in highly ominous memories. Barney Hill recalled creatures with slanted eyes taking the couple aboard their UFO to conduct experiments on their naked bodies. Usually they're the big black round eyes. They put their clothes back on them before they put them back in the driveway, I guess. Barney claimed. Well, yeah, they have, today they're technologically advanced. They know how to get, get buttons done and undone, zippers done, and things. Barney claimed that the beings took samples of hair, skin, took nail clippings, and then a six inch long needle was inserted into Benny's stomach. That is not funny. Ooh, yeah, that's what. Ah! That's it. <laughs> Betty told Dr. Simon that Barney! She, she later cast a being they knew to be, quote, the leader where they were. The being jokingly replied, because he's funny, if you don't know where you are, there wouldn't be any point in telling you where I am. Well, that's because they said you stand up in outer space, what do you think? That's what Bill Burr, Bill Burr in outer space. You took me to space by yourself. Don't you know where you are? Why should I tell you? During another hypnosis session in 1964, Betty purportedly drew a star map of the sky from memory, as seen from a planet orbiting the star Zeta Reticuli. Most shockingly, above all, was that this map was drawn with confounding accuracy, and that Zeta Reticuli lies some 40 light years from the Earth. Betty's nearly spot-on recreation of the stars surrounding an actual star system remains one of the most intriguing aspects of all alien stories ever reported. There's no way this woman would have that knowledge. No. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a phenomenal and story. No I mean, it's... not going to coincidentally... Yeah, you can't make... It's just like this, this isn't really something you could... Well, if they make this up, they went through a lot of work to do it. I've got to hand it to them. It's fake. Oh, my God. She somehow went to Zeta Reticuli. Yeah, well, they. Yeah, and how they get this star map? How did they figure that out? I know. How would you? Yeah. So. Yeah, you can't like do research, and I don't think the average person would even be able to. I wouldn't be able to do it. And I'm, you know, kind of know a little bit about it. I don't think I could do it. I know I can't. Ultimately, Barney and Betty Hill's account led to the Air Force launch of Project Blue Book, which we discussed quite a bit last yeah, week. Yeah, we did. Um, a shadowy initiative that aimed to investigate domestic UFO sightings and also presented a template for all the UFO abduction stories that followed to the decades to come. So, Doug, what you got? Well, the 1969 Berkshire's UFO incident that shocked an entire town. When numerous residents of Berkshire County, Massachusetts, individually reported having seen a UFO on September 1st, 1969, authorities were at a loss for an explanation. This wasn't a lone sighting induced by sleep deprivation that could be easily dismissed. It's truly, it truly appeared as though something uncanny had occurred. On the evening in question, residents spotted lights above Sheffield in the southern Berkshires. Many of the witnesses said the lights were fitted to an unidentified disc-shaped craft that was maneuvering as in unprecedented ways. Some witnesses claimed that they lost track of time as they gazed and with stunned fascination at the object. It's 
this light thing always kills me with, you know, they don't need light, you know. A, I think they're advanced enough where they're not going to run into each other. Hey, well, look out, don't run into that guy. You know, he's got a light. They got lights on their ship. Make sure you don't run into the other guy. He's got his light on. You know, you know, the light, <laughs> it's the siren, you know, lights and sirens. And it's, you know, I get the thing where people, I almost get the thing where the light shines on the people and all of a sudden they're in the ship. That might be some sort of means of transportation, like they're floating. But up you don't in think the, they have a bubble light on top of it? They, I don't know. I don't think they have the, the old school, like. Rollers? Yeah. Um, Thomas Reed was nine years old at the time. In the car with his mother, brother, and grandmother that night, the family noticed a group of glowing orbs dash out of the roadside trees. And these orbs, I mean, this is paranormal. It's like we studied when we talked about this. Yes. Could be some sort of, you know, paranormal activity. Reed claims that something astounding happened when heading home. His family approached Sheffield Bridge. It came to a stop off the right side of the road he recalled of the glowing orbs. Everything got really calm. It was like being in the middle of a hurricane. There was like a barometric change in pressure. It was like just a, like dead silence. Then there was like an eruption. He was a teenager. Like, <laughs> it was like, then there was an eruption of crickets across and it got really loud and then that was an eruption. Eruption. They erupted. Well, those things are loud. You know, both of those are. Then the family suddenly found itself back in the car, but they had inexplicably lost two hours of memory. Stranger still, Reed's mother and grandmother had somehow switched car seats. That's, not That's right. interesting. And they kept, you know, they to want to make, you know, they need to make sure that they put the driver put back in the back. driver's. Don't put grandma in the in what? the driver's seat when she's like the state of California. Don't took her license away because she, she had too many accidents, you know. Wow. Maybe they didn't understand in England you drive on the other side of the car. Mm, could be. Despite any tangible evidence of the Berkshire UFO incident, Reed has remained steadfast as a count. He said over time the family regained some memory of the incident, including having been in a hangar-like facility with other people. We encountered something, said Reed. It was definitely not of this world. This hangar thing we were in was huge. It was larger than a football field. This hallway we had seen was a circular with a Y configuration, almost controlled the flow of traffic. This one room had a bowed-in wall that was rounded. It's important to remember that Reed was only one of dozens of people who reported witnessing a UFO in the Sheffield area that night. Some were adults who called into the local radio station to report the sighting. Others were children who began drawing UFOs in class. There must have been 20 or 30 sketches that were drawn by children in our fourth grade class from what they saw, said Reed. They hung underneath in the class board in Sheffield Center School. More than one of those hang in the Roswell Museum today. People don't realize the significance of this, and so it wasn't just us. What do you got? I've got the UFO abduction of witness driver while he was writing science fiction. What a coincidence. I know. All right. Who would they, why would they choose? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, well, he's got some experience. You know, he has some experience in the field. So, you know, it's that's, like. Maybe he called them with his. 
yeah. thoughts of science fiction. It could be. Well, maybe they read the book and went, yeah, you know, this might be interesting. Somebody we might want to talk to. Maybe they downloaded on their Yeah, they downloaded it. On their space Kindle. Uh, Willie Stryver has written fiction for more than 40 years with notable titles including the horror novels The Wolfen and The Hunger. Stryver contends that his writing streak was interrupted one night in the late 80s by by an alien abduction in upstate New York. Stryver recounted his experience in his nonfiction title Communion in 1987. The alleged incident occurred on the night of December 26, 1985, as Driver slept alone in his cabin in the woods. Night after Christmas, bottle of Jack finished. I can see it. So you're in your cabin, you're writing. You know. Woken by a strange noise, he purportedly saw a small, non-human entity approaching his bed. <laughs> that wouldn't freak. Can you imagine? He didn't, he didn't think raccoon. <laughs> It's just not human. And um, it's just walking toward me. It's coming to my bed. Suddenly, it was morning. Uh Uh Uh-oh. Wait, what happened? Oh, something hurts. (laughs) Not only had he awoken disoriented, but he felt oddly aggressive. (laughs) Which happens a lot of mornings. Just just, like you this morning? Yes, I was angry this morning. I did not get enough sleep. It was during a session of regressive hypnosis a few months later, some of the memories returned. According to Stryver, beings that he has since referred to as, quote, visitors, entered his home and abducted him. While seen as a work of fiction added to his catalog of alien stories by many, Stryver never wavered from his position. In fact, his later work only doubled down on the notion that aliens were visiting him. In his book, The Key, A True Encounter, Stryver detailed another alien encounter that he claims took place in Toronto. Asleep in his Delta Chelsea hotel room in the middle of the night on June 6, 1998, Stryver claimed to have been visited by another mysterious uh, stranger. In 1988, during a Larry King Live interview with Whitley Stryver, Stryver said, I got up to open the door, thinking it was a room service waiter. It was not. It was not. Where's my food? And who are you? It was not. It was a man. (laughs) He described him as about five and a half feet tall, older looking, like someone in his 70s. Definitely not your waiter. Now you said it might be Larry King? It could be. He doesn't mention suspicious. I don't know how tall he is. I've only seen him behind that desk with the sparkly stuff behind. He wore dark colored clothing, a turtleneck, and charcoal slacks. It sounds like the manager of the hotel, not the busboy. Stryber claimed the visitor stood motionless by the window for nearly an hour. He loved it. I would not have let him in. Expounding (laughs) on the dangers of creating. Yeah, you'd have to have a pretty good story when we let you in. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't. don't It should be the blonde with the blue eyes. That one, that you let in. You're not getting the, you know, we do bring food. Okay, so. He said that the, the stranger stood motionless by the window for nearly an hour, expounding on the dangers of creating an intelligence more evolved than its creator. This is deep. Stryver said it was the most extraordinary conversation I've ever had in my life. While many are skeptical of Stryver's alien abduction claims, 
One former Green Beret commander and developer of weapons at Los Alamos, New Mexico, John B. Alexander, believes him. An interesting combination of occupations. A Green Bay Corrette commander and developer of weapons at Los Alamos. I mean, is that, is that, am I the only one that finds that unusual? Speaking of aggressive. Speaking of aggressive. Jumped all over you. Go ahead. For more than two decades, I have been, this is John B. Alexander, his, his quote here. For more than two decades, I have been interacting with Whitley Stryber and found him to be one of the most intelligent and thoughtful researchers in the field. There is no doubt he has had some very strange experiences, ones that even he does not claim to fully understand. Which yeah, that's interesting. Then there's the Pascagoula alien story. They saw two fishermen subjected to experimentation. They were just fishing. I was just fishing. It was October 11, 1973, when Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson went fishing on the banks of the Pascagoula River in Mississippi. At first, when Parker saw blue lights reflecting the water, he thought police had come to instruct them, instruct the two to leave. A big light came out of the clouds. Parker, here we go with the slide again. Parker, we go. We got a warning. You know, you can't just call in. You got to come in with lights and sirens. Hey, we're here. You don't want to mess with anything. You don't want to land on anything. It was a blinding light. It was hard to tell with the lights as so bright, but it looked like it was shaped like a football. I would say, just estimating, it was about 80 feet. It made very little sound, and it was just a hissing noise. Parker then claimed that three legless that three legless creatures floated out of the vessel toward them. He described all three as having mitten-shaped claws, while one was necklace and gray, the other appeared to be more feminine. When one of them tried to wrap its hands around Parker's neck, his natural response of fear was oddly subsided. I think they injected us with something to call us. It was kind of numb and went. I was kind of numb and went along with the program. Of course. <laughs> Back to the Jack Lumber. Yeah. It, Parker alleged alleged that he and Hickson were taken aboard the alien vessel and experimented on. Afterward, the two terrified fishermen found themselves back on the riverbank as though nothing had happened. They drove to the Jackson County Sheriff's Office and told Captain Glenn Ryder and Sheriff Fred Diamond the entire story. When I got in there, they had me, Hickson told the police. There were no seats, no chain. They just moved me around, and I couldn't resist them. I just floated, felt no sensation, no pain. They kept me in that position a little while, and then they raised me back up. In 2018, the Sun-Herald interview with Calvin Parker, who describes the incident from the banks of the Pascaluga River. Nixon claimed that a machine resembling a giant eye looked over his entire body. He said he was surrounded by inhuman, five-foot-tall, monopedal beings. Captain Ryder didn't believe the two men. He stepped out of the interrogation room but left a secret recording device running in hopes of obtaining proof that their alien stories were fabricated. But what he later heard on the recording made him think twice. As I said... Jesus Christ, God have mercy. I thought I'd been through enough of this hell on earth, and now I've got to go through something like this, said Hickson to Parker. 
But they could have, you know, I guess they, well, they could have armed us, son. They had us. They could have done anything with us. I just want to cry right now, added Parker. What's so damn bad about it is nobody's going to believe us. With no physical evidence of their abduction, the alien story remains a mystery. Parker stayed quiet about the event for decades, but after Hickson's death in 2011, he wrote a 2018 book on the matter. Its publication prompted others to come forward, claiming that they too had seen a UFO that night. Here's one for you. Oh, this is, this is interesting. Uh, more from the alien abduction of Antonio Villas Boas that ended in extraterrestrial coitus. Hello. <laughs> All's well that ends well. <laughs> in 1954, two Venezuelan teenagers claimed that they found a UFO in the woods and were only able to escape with their lives after fighting off small hairy aliens. <laughs> Back to the raccoons. The kids. Brazilian journalist Jose Martins covered Oh, that's not Jose, that's, sorry. J.O. Martins covered the alleged experience in 1957 and asked readers to send in their own. That's when he was contacted by former Antonio Villas Boas. Martins paid for the 23-year-old's travel expenses. They put him up in Rio de Janeiro, where Dr. Olavo Fontes examined him. Boas claimed that he experienced an alien abduction one day after reading Martins' article chronicling the Venezuela incident, which seemed rather convenient. Boas said he had been working nights in his family's field in order to avoid the hot daytime temperatures. On October 16, 1957, he purportedly saw a, quote, red star above the fields near San Francisco de Salas. As it approached, Boas claimed that atop the egg-shaped craft was a cupola containing a rotating red light. Cupola? Is that cupola. just like a cup thing, or what's the cup hold? Like a half cup? Yeah, I, I think it's yeah, like a little addition, like like on a house, it kind of juts out from the house. Oh, As yeah. the vessel extended its three legs to the earth, Boas claimed that he tried to flee, but he was captured by five-foot-tall beings wearing gray overalls and helmets, and then taken aboard their ship. Why, do, why would aliens wear helmets? I mean, yeah, you know, they, of course they're crashed. Of course, in Roswell, they had like two crashes there and a very short period. That was the training area for UFOs. So maybe they do need, you know. Helmets. Well, they always seem to never survive their crashes. <laughs> maybe they all of a sudden realize, you know what? Maybe right. We better start wearing helmets. We keep crashing. Boas alleged that the being's eyes were blue and small and their communication consisted of animal-like sounds. After blood was taken from his chin... <laughs> a really nice place to get a needle stuck in you. Well, it gets better. Maybe he had a beard or something. They didn't want to be able to see where they... The, the, after, the well, sight. So now okay, they've taken blood out of his chin, and now he was purportedly placed into a room filled with a strange gas, which caused him to feel severely ill. That's not, that's not very good. Okay, maybe that's better. Soon, a naked and attractive female Woo. entered the room. All Did right. she have overalls in the... She had overalls in the helmet. <laughs> now, 
Boaz claimed the woman was adorned with long blonde hair and red pubic hair. Okay, wait. And that the two soon engaged in <laughs> Blonde sex. hair and red pubic hair. So she probably dyed her hair, I'm thinking, because, you know, the red, she yeah, probably wanted. Is, red is a wig. Is a wig. Because. <laughs> but what did you say? That some, the, the curtains don't Carpets have Carpets and drapes. Carpets and drapes. That's a dream. <laughs> okay. This is serious. Okay, go ahead. Serious. <laughs> Afterward, the woman gestured to her stomach, then motioned upwards, which give me a hamburger. Thought, well, <laughs> I'm about to throw up. Which Boas, well, he interpreted it to mean that she would raise their child in space. Boas claimed he felt angry at having been treated like a quote, good stallion by the beings. Oh, he was subsequently taken off the ship. He's all mad. And watched it ascend to the heavens <laughs> with his child. Four hours had passed since the abduction. Though both Martins and Dr. Fontes believed the story was fabricated, the doctor did notice signs that Boa had radiation sickness, such as nausea, bruising, burning sensation in the eye. And skin that was painful to yeah, the touch. Yeah, or sexually transmitted I've disease. A, I've got something in my Extraterrestrial eye. sexually transmitted disease. Huh? And it's, yeah, so Boas later became a successful lawyer who created models of the UFO from his story in his spare time. While Walter, what it made out of mashed potatoes? While yeah. Walter Bueller of the Brazilian ufology group SPEDB visited him in 1962 and published a report on his story. It still, like them all, remains unproven. Boas died in 1991, but his intriguing alien story and his love child live on. I'd like to see one of the models. That'd be interesting. Yeah, there was also um, some additions to the story. There's spaces putting her. Um, the it's the gas and it's the platinum blonde hair. The girl. It also says she had deep blue cat eyes. Um, she forced him to have it. I'm sure he resisted just, mm -hmm. you know, the cat eyes, and they get you every time. Um, and then, of course, the radiation burns, worldwide popularity. Um, there was, uh, the story gained worldwide popularity in the late 50s. Many were led to believe its veracity for politically incorrect reasons. Claiming that a humble farmer from rural Brazil was not able to concoct such a tale. In reality, Vias Boas was not really a humble or uneducated. Was not really humble or uneducated. His family owned large tracts of land and at least one tractor. It's at least one. They better have more than one tractor. He later became a lawyer, which we talked about until his death in 1992. A sensationalist video about the case by Paranormal TV, PTV, tells its own version of the story. The overwhelming majority of scientists categorically deny that narratives of abductions are real in any way. Most cases are, if not plain hoaxes, the product of various kinds of abnormal psychological states. American researcher and skeptic Peter Rogerson questioned the veracity of the Vias Boas narrative, arguing that an article about alien abduction had appeared in the widely popular magazine O Cruzero. O Cruzero. O Cruzero. You got that one? Oh, yeah. You have a subscription? Yeah, yeah. Have since 1957. In uh, November 1957. That's one 
they're noting. He noted that Villas Boas' story only started to gain popularity in 1958, and that Villas Boas could have predated his encounter to give it more credibility. Also, Rogerson argued that Villas Boas was influenced, as were many other abductees, by the popular sensationalist narratives of ufologist George Adamski. And here's another fun one for you. Now we have the UFO abduction of pilot Frederick Valentik while he was in mid-flight. That's a bad time to get abducted. Yeah. On October 21, 1978, Australian pilot Frederick Valentik disappeared in thin air. It was during a 125 nautical mile training flight aboard his Cessna 1821 over the Bass Strait between Tasmania and the Australian mainland. That's 182i. Um, There's more. It's made in 1982. Uh, or 1821. I like 1821. Okay. Sorry. That the, <laughs> that the confounding incident occurred. <laughs> it's important to note that the. 20... Oh, I guess it wouldn't be in 1982, since this was 1972. <laughs> okay. You know, we this all could have done, you know, with our first read through. We could have had this discussion, and so the world wouldn't have to. Here are inaccuracies. Isn't marriage wonderful? It's important to note that the 20 year old, who is an enthusiast of alien stories and ufology, was a fairly experienced pilot. At 7.06 p.m., while at 4,500 feet, after departing Moorabbin to reach King Island, Valentik reported that an unidentified craft was following him. Melbourne's flight service insisted there was no traffic near him, but the pilot was adamant that a large vessel was on his tail. He explained that it had four bright lights and suddenly passed a thousand feet above him at remarkable speed. For five straight minutes, Valentik described its movements and shiny metallic exterior. Suddenly, Valentik experienced engine trouble Melbourne Flight Service asked him once again what the aircraft looked like. It's hovering and is not an aircraft, were his final words. The last radio officials heard was a metallic scraping sound. Authorities presumed he had crashed, but a later search of the area yielded nothing. Not even the Australian Department of Transport could find answers. In 2014, however, some new claims came to light. A UFO action group in Victoria alleged that an unidentified farmer, the old unidentified farmer, yeah, yeah. observed a UFO nearly 90 feet in length hovering above his farm on the morning following Valentik's disappearance. More importantly, the farmer purportedly claimed that the pilot's plane was stuck to the UFO. Well, more likely it's stuck, oil. not on it, stuck in it. He rammed into the side. We can't leave the atmosphere because we got a hole in the side of our craft. Maybe they just sucked it up. He can't. Maybe, yeah, they're, it's, maybe they're trained. Yeah, like the picture that's sucking up the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, maybe it's see? just, you know, stuck to the side of this thing. And oil leaking out of it. I mean, he obviously crashed into the USO. That's what I'm saying. While the farmer said that he scratched the airplane's registration number on his tractor, There's as, no, you, as you do. Because you don't have a pen in the field or he, a pencil. He never came forward, <laughs> claiming that the ridicule he'd received from his peers after telling them this tale 
had discouraged him. And unfortunately, the Victorian UFO group never managed to identify the farmer. For the UFO action group's lead investigator, George Simpson, frustration abounds. He said it's easy for some to dismiss, but there are corroborating stories confirming there was a UFO near Adelaide at this time. This was an experienced pilot who should have been able to identify another aircraft, but was clearly unable to. Ultimately, only a few possibilities regarding the disappearance of Frederick Valentich exist. That he crashed and his remnants were never recovered, that he purportedly disappeared, or of course that he was abducted by entities we don't yet understand and you know sucked back. Yeah, and really, I've, I've got an acquaintance that um, their father was in the Korean War and he was worked on it. He wasn't a pilot, but he worked on the radar. He was a radar operator, and he said that. Well, this said, we don't see anything. He said, this thing's right here. And they're saying the control tower is like, I don't, we don't, we don't see, see anything. anything. Well, the, he saw the UFOs and he saw the UFOs on a scope. So, I mean, unless they're stealth, they have some, who knows, right? Stealth they're technology. They're they have a cloaking device. That's right. Like the, you know. They're Klingons. When Travis Walton was abducted, and probed for five days. Yeah, that's a long time to be probed. A newspaper headline details Walton's five-day disappearance, which he attributes to an alien abduction. On November 5th, 1975, Travis Walton was purportedly abducted and didn't return for five whole days. But his wife is angry. He just went out on a drinking. He's binge, binge drinking. When he did, she had to... She had the, the rolling pin That's in her right. hand or curlers. <laughs> when he did, he had quite the explanation for his disappearance. Dismissed as a mentally unstable liar. Bummer. Walton chronicled his alleged alien stories in the Waltons. No, no. The, oh, the Walton experience. It was John it's a Boy. whole different story. Three years later, which he adapted into a science fiction classic, Fire in the Sky, which was actually pretty pretty good. Walton's abduction began after a long day's work at Site Greaves National Forest near Herber, Arizona. Walton and his six-man group of loggers were returning home when they allegedly spotted a shiny disc spanning 40 feet in diameter hovering in the sky above them. It was a metallic glowing disc making some very strange sounds, he recalled. The closer I got, the more scared we all got, and they were swearing at me to get away from there. And when I got up close, it suddenly got louder and started to move. Walton then claimed that the non-human beings abducted him and experimented on him until he fought them off. He has maintained this claim for 45 years, but as the beings purportedly poked and prodded at him on a kind of table, five days elapsed. Five days of thinking it, right? Yeah, it's not in the, like, it sounds like they're torturing him. Nuts. <laughs> Five days elapsed on Earth where Walton was officially declared missing and his co-workers became suspects. I became conscious inside the craft and I believed I was in the hospital, said Walton. I was in a lot of pain and I became more conscious. I looked around and saw alien beings and I just panicked. Yes, you would. Yeah, hell. 
they were much smaller than me, and I think that's the reason they gave up, he said, adding that he hit one of them. Once they found out they couldn't control me, they split. <laughs> they split, man. They kept you for five days, and now you think you're in control? <laughs> and they split, man. I was absolutely terrified. Meanwhile, Walton's colleagues were questioned by authorities, and when Walton miraculously reappeared, a full-scale investigation was launched. That included polygraph, psychological evaluations, and physical, more physical examinations, but not for five days growing. For five days, almost five more days, for five days, the authority thought he'd been murdered by his co-workers and he returned, said ufologist Jim Ledwith. All of the co-workers who were there, who saw the spacecraft, they all took polygraph tests and they all passed, except for one, and that one was inconclusive. In the end, the Walton case remains as inconclusive as all of these alien abduction stories do. Curiosity, however, later research conducted at the site of Walton's abduction showed an unusual growth rate in the trees where the craft allegedly, allegedly hovered. The trees near the site were found to be producing wood fiber at a rate 36 times greater than they had in the decades before. That is weird. It's producing some wood. That's, I, I mean, if they could make the plants in our backyard grow that fast. Yeah, I wish our, I'd just make them live. We could have some trees. Now we have the UFO abductions of Audrey and Debbie Hewins from their childhood room. Audrey and Debbie Hewins not only claim that aliens exist, but that alien abductions do too, and they have experienced them. I was probably about five years old or so, said Audrey and a bright blue light would come into the room and the door would open and there would be like a foggy kind of misty blue light just shining through the whole house and then these two figures would come in. Though Audrey's first alien abduction allegedly occurred during childhood, she claimed these visitations continued well into adulthood. We have been together on abductions, said Audrey. We have been up in crafts and seen our house from above. So we realized they are not from here. They are very good at mind erasing or whatever you want to call it. They'll leave you with bits of, and pieces of things you can remember. Debbie added, I remember one time being on a spaceship and standing there on the spaceship and the floor and the walls disappeared and I was staring at the earth. Well, the twins refer to these entities as, quote, the bald men. What they've described to people willing to listen closely resembles what UFOologists have dubbed alien grace. UFOologists. I can't say that word. The study of UFOs. They have dubbed them alien grays or simply grays. They never have hair. In every instance you hear about them, they like never have hair. lady in her pubic hair. Well, you know, that's a little different. You might be right. She might. If we made her bald, she might not have been as appealing. But they're, As opposed to the long, long hair and red pubic hair. And the big blue eyes. <laughs> it's kind of clash. The whole thing I could just clash, clashing. Grays are alleged to be a type of extraterrestrial being that is human-like in form, gray-colored, with an enlarged, hairless head. So attractive. The twins said they pleaded with their parents not to put them to bed for fear of encountering the bald men. But the adults simply dismissed these alien stories as a ruse. The kids they didn't want to go to, I don't want to go to sleep. They don't want to go to bed. <laughs> the 
They started doing all kinds of experiments on us when we were 12, said Audrey. Oh, wow. While she was initially hesitant to come forward, Audrey claimed that after a non-human entity saved her from drowning in the ocean, she was inspired to dedicate her life to openly discussing her alien abduction experiments. I want to hear about those. Neuro, oh, her drowning. That's an interesting. Yeah. Neuroscientist Robert Davis, who was one of the first professionals to lend his support to the twins, explained that Audrey and Debbie Hewen's experiences are shared by many thousands, if not millions, worldwide. It is unreasonable to think that they would all be lying or reporting dreams and fantasies, he said. These events are consistently reported and should be taken seriously by everyone, in spite of their uniqueness. Chat, Doug. Well, we've got the alien story of Marine veteran Terrell Copeland that saw him abducted while napping. That's, you know, I love napping. But I know. if. I love a good nap, Sometimes but it's going to be like that, forget it. When you're napping, I'm thinking that aliens could come and you never know. <laughs> as a former United States Marine, Terrell Copeland isn't easily dismissed as an unreliable observer. And so his alien stories are perhaps harder to shake. Copeland claimed that his first experience with aliens occurred in 2007, when he captured footage of what he believed to be a UFO on his cell phone from his apartment in Suffolk, Virginia. That's, I'm surprised we don't get more pictures of cell phone UFOs. As I'm as a member of MUFON, I see, I regularly look at the new pic, you know, they update it all the time. And still to this day, the, the, there's not a clear picture of BAM, you know? I know, we have pictures of everything now. Yeah, we just can't seem to get a good picture of the UFO. It was an orb of light, he said, and another orb. Just a big ball of light. It wasn't moving. One was solid white, the other was directly across the street from it, about 300 feet above the ground and was changing colors very rapidly. Copeland recalled feeling as though something was wrong and that he wasn't supposed to be witnessing the unnerving aerial appearance. But he alleged that it wasn't until after the publish, after he published the footage online that things truly became strange. I woke up from a nap by the sound of someone trying to enter my apartment, he said. And I said, who is it? Who's there? Who's there? There was no answer. You could see the doorknob movie. You know, I say the, the movies with the door. The doorknob's movie. And like a scratching at the door. The aliens can't knock or ring, you know. They're just trying to figure out how to open the And they're door. short, so you're looking out the little people, and you can't see them because they're like down here. And then there's a scratching, and they're just trying to get in. You know, they're so technologically advanced, they, you know, have to, like, they can't work a door scratch door. the door. They can't, like, <laughs> overcome this simple... It's a, it's a knob. This simple lock thing. So, you can see the doorknob moving and scratching the door, and I keep a firearm. It was on my... So, I keep... I was on my table, so the gun, he always just keeps sitting on the table. Well, yeah. He was just done cleaning it, obviously. Uh-huh. And my thought was to get up and check, or slightly paranoid. Despite the urge to get up, Copeland was paralyzed and only able to move his eyes. And there's this gun right there. Boy, that would be a nightmare. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, you're sitting there, and you can only move your eyes, and your gun's right there, and here comes Shorty. Suddenly, he heard a voice through the door tell him, <laughs> through the door, tell him, you don't need that weapon. We won't harm. 
The incident suddenly resembled the natural phenomenon known as sleep paralysis, which is experienced by many. But Copeland soon began to experience missing hours as well. He was incapable of accounting for for four waking hours during a span of two nights. Those are the drinking hours. Mm -hmm. I've often like lost hours. <laughs> when you see these objects and then you do the research, you are you see where there are so many people who have experienced the same thing as you. He said, you have to say to yourself, maybe there's something to this. Copeland claimed that as soon as he started to keep a log of notes and sketches, his memory of what had happened during the episodes of Missing Time began to resurface. I was in a room and I saw a woman who did not have complete human features, he said. She had the typical black eyes that you hear about. She had an elongated skull, and that startled me. And the next memory I have is me standing on my balcony waving at the cylinder shape shot. Bye. Bye. Thanks for coming. See you next time. I'll leave the door unlocked so you don't have to scratch. Why the long face? Why the long face? Copeland's alien stories, which were eventually chronicled on the History Channel, remain both startling and unproven, as all alien abduction tales do. In the end, however, Copeland said that his experience was for the best and it left him with a desire to be a better person. I feel if someone from above took notice of me, then maybe I'm doing something right. And if I'm doing something right, maybe I can do it better. What do you think, Deb? Do you think these things are, do you, what do you think about these abductions? I, As we go through story after story. There are so many people that tell them, but it just. Seems, you think it's just some psychological, you know, it's a thing. a dream. You know, drug-induced. But I mean, this guy had radiation burns. Where did he get? Where did he get radiation burns? And then you got the trees that started, you know, growing faster too. But the the fact that he had radiation burns and he had actual scars, he was somewhere for five days. He wasn't in his bed. He wasn't paralyzed. He was in his. He was gone from his entire family for five days. Yeah, it's. I don't know. There is so many, so many stories about this and. Just like the UFOs and the aliens and Bigfoot, you know, we're having trouble getting our arms around it, you know, so. Well, it's hard to believe what you can't see, but yet, if, how can you deny what so many people have experienced? Yeah, I think there might be something to it. Well, this uh, wraps up another episode of Alien Probe Podcast. Catch us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're the Alien Probe Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Alien Probe Pod. Send your questions or comments to Alien Probe Podcast at gmail.com. We would really love to hear from you. Yep. Just as note, we'll read you on the on the on the podcast. <laughs>